Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The gist is brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine, offering luxury wine at affordable prices. Buy any five bottles of wine and get one bottle of Pinot Noir free and receive free shipping. Just go to chwine.com and enter the promo code GIST at checkout. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 10th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Gist is, of course, your home for elephant news and some elephant thoughts. Big news in the world of elephants. In the world of elephants, there are no little stories. Ringling Brothers has performed its last show with elephants. Now the former circus performers will be remanded into custody. Actually, they'll be sent to Florida where they will be studied for clues that they may hold, that their blood may hold in researching childhood cancers. Cancer is... It's about 5% in the elephant community, 25% among humans, and researchers will be examining the blood of elephants to see what insights can be gleaned. Amazing, or as PETA calls it, objectionable. See, PETA cares about animals, and it doesn't privilege the homo sapien variety over loxodonta or Elephas. That's the African and Indian elephants. All right, to be totally accurate, PETA's objections are more about how the elephants will be treated in this Florida facility, this ringling retirement facility. The use of leg chains and bull hooks are being looked at. However, elephants in non-circus environments are not doing so well throughout the world. Zimbabwe, hit by drought, has posted notice in a state newspaper that it wants to sell its elephants. Quote, members of the public with the capacity to acquire and manage wildlife are asked to make offers to buy the megafauna. The parks just can't support the elephants. Some of the elephants were even sold to China, a move that drew the ire of international animal rights groups. In Kenya, revenge killing and poachers have led to a situation where elephants are dying off in greater number than they're being born. And according to the Atlantic magazine, elephants are being driven crazy by drones. (coughs) They really are just like people. Here it is. Earlier this year, researchers from Duke University went to Gabon to monitor that country's dwindling elephant population. They took along three drones to study the elephants. The elephants hated the drones, went crazy. One sprayed mud at the drones. The theory is that the elephants think of the drones as bees, large bees. And even though elephants are afraid of no big or even medium animal, they hate bees. Bees sting elephants. So right now, In a world, in the real world, not a world that you imagine without an ivory trade and with a world with only lush fields for the elephants to graze upon. If I had the choice to be a wild elephant 
or a well-treated zoo or circus elephant. Maybe there's no such thing as a well-treated circus elephant or a zoo elephant. Or, Or if my nephew came up to me and said, uncle, I'm thinking of becoming an elephant. Should I be a zoo elephant or should I be a wild elephant? What should I choose? I would sit the boy down and I would say to him, Jumbo, I always knew this day would come. And I think zoo, very ethical zoo elephant. Perhaps there is no way to train an elephant that isn't cruel, but if it's a good habitat and a nice zoo, I think there are a lot less dangers. You'll have a a much less exciting but longer and safer life if that's what you choose. Now, that's me speaking from my non-elephantine point of view. Perhaps the view from behind the trunk differs. I cannot speak to that. We'd all love a world where elephants roam free and are safe, but as for now, maybe a life of Florida retirement and aiding in cancer research isn't so bad, especially if you don't have to wear that ridiculous circus headgear. So humiliating. Thus ends Elephant Thoughts. (coughs) On the show today, I spiel about the Brexit, and now another type of animal, not native to Africa or India, but Scotland, and not actually an animal, a guy who pretends he's an animal when he sings, it's Frightened Rabbit. Here's what Cameron Hughes does, actual person with a great idea. He goes to Napa Valley, he goes to Sonoma, he knows what wine they're making, and he says, this is good wine. They say, yeah, we agree. This wine is like over 90 points in Wine Spectator. That's why it sells for $155 a bottle. And Cameron says, but what about this stuff over here, like 20% of that vat that you're not selling? They say, yeah, we use it for a blend. We're just going to throw it away. No, no, says Cameron Hughes. Give it to me. I'll put my own label on it, not your label. I'll just give it a number and it will be as good as the wine that you sell for $155. I'll sell it for 30. And the reason Cameron Hughes wine is as good as the other brands is because it literally is the other brand's wine, just not branded as such. Cameron Hughes recently received two of the top three spots for top value Cabernet by Wine Spectator. And we have an exclusive offer by any five bottles bottles of wine and get one bottle of Pinot Noir free only if you go to chwine.com and use my code GIST at checkout. You know the deal with Cameron Hughes wine. It's great quality wine at a fraction of the price. It is the great wine that you see under their labels in the wine store, but ch.com is the place to get Cameron Hughes wine. And by entering my code GIST at checkout, you receive a free Pinot Noir from me and free shipping. Enter the code GIST at checkout at chwine.com. If Robert Burns were a band and also took a lot of organ lessons, he might come up with something like Frightened Rabbit. All right, he's Scottish. I'm sorry to do the Scottish band stereotypical thing, but Frightened Rabbit are a group that combines really poetic lyrics and sometimes rousing, sometimes stirring uh, melodies. And Scott Hutchinson is the vocalist, the guitarist, writes all or most of the songs of Frightened Rabbit. In fact, from what I understand, there was a time when Frightened Rabbit was just Scott. Hey, Scott, how are you? 
Hey, I'm good. This is, uh, this is true, what you just said. It was a very brief time, <laughs> and a time when nobody was really listening to me, but um, I, I had some songs. I had, like, I, it's weird to think back to that person who would, like, stand on stage without even any necessarily fully prepared material and just see what happened. That's kind of, uh, that guy's weird to me at this point. But uh, yeah, it was for six months or so. It was just me and a guitar opening for my friends' fans and having nobody to attention. Now, I've talked to some other artists who are essentially solo acts, but they call themselves a band name like Connor Opst is Bright Eyes or Annie Clark is St. Vincent. And they have told me it's like an extra layer of protection. You know, it's a little either either egotistical or putting yourself on the line even more so to go out there with the name Scott Hutchison on the billboard. It did So why did you want to call yourself Frightened Rabbit and not just hear some songs by Scott? Well, I well. First of all, I don't think I have a very good rock name. <laughs> you know, it's not like it, it, it's not quite the same as uh, like it's not a Mick Jagger or you know anything that kind of chimes or is memorable. I don't mind my name, but it doesn't really work much on a marquee. I don't think. Also, at the time, I was really heavily into an artist from Manchester called Badly John Boy, and I was kind of kind of going for that kind of thing. And then eventually my brother joined the band on drums and he was like, look, are you, is, is this you or is this us? Is this going to be a band? Because if it's not going to be a band and you're going to just like put yourself in all the photos by yourself and all that shit, he kind of urged me to make it a band. And that's when that kind of happened about six months into my, into my solo career. It was cut short by my brother. So what, was he into the name Frightened Rabbit? Because that was your childhood nickname, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone's really into the name of Frank Rabbit. It's like, it just kind of, it's what we started with, and it just kind of stuck. And uh, I don't, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the name, because I think sometimes viewed as, as mildly humorous, sometimes I wish I'd take something a little bit cooler. All right, so this new album is called uh, Painting of a Panic Attack, and it takes its title from the first, from a line in the first song, Death Dream. And, you know, in your words, are these are these songs with titles like I Wish I Was Sober and Woke Up Hurting, are they morose? Are they hopeful? Are they uh, a little on the dark side of life, but with a silver lining? How do you look at them? I think that's exactly what they are. These there's something in me that can't quite bear to be overwhelmingly depressive. I, you know, there's, there's, there's no, there's no purpose in that. I think what, what I've always strived to do is, is maybe pull people in with this sort of sense of darkness and, and then, and then at the end, give like, give, give everyone a way out. You know, it's like there has to be a turn and it usually happens at the end of the song where you're like maybe dragged through the mire a little bit and then, all of a sudden, it's like maybe the sky opens up and, 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 and there's a, there is a sort of bright sense of hope at the end of these songs. And it's that, it's that kind of, I think it's, a, it's quite a Scottish sensibility. It's like, uh, everything is absolutely screwed up, but we're not dead. You know, we're, we're still here and there is something, there's something to live for, I guess. Yeah. Things are cold, but, you know, we have nice sweaters. That sort of thing. Oh, exactly. You know, that's a, that's a, Jane, that's a very, that's a very Scottish sentiment right there. Dress for the weather. I have made and run sacred rivers up my sleeve. Pills by my sweet lemonade. Back, back street, coming. 
So the album that I found you with, or the specific songs, were the Midnight Organ Fight. And to me, that was a little more explicitly hopeful. There is a song on that album called I Feel Better. Did you feel better then than you do now? I do. I do. There's like there's a lot of things that I should feel good about. And uh, I, 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 uh, although there is this sense, and, and go, thinking back to where I was when I was making that album, there was a there was a greater sense of excitement, and there was more. You know, not it's hard for me to explain, but I think there was this like when you're starting your career, like anything could fucking happen. Like, and it, there, there are no limits to what you can achieve, and I think that sense is very, is very audible on that record. And we were just coming up in our career, and that that place is not a place that we can ever return to because we've been doing it for ten years now, and everything changes during that time. So I feel far more well adjusted. I feel more comfortable. I feel happier. But that kind of raw excitement is something that I, I kind of look back on and. I wish I could get a taste of a game. Now, though, when we as fans of the band or anyone listening, you know, the band ends, uh, sorry, the album ends with a song, Die Like a Rich Boy, and it's not the first reference to suicidal thoughts or, you know, wanting to throw yourself off a bridge. How much should we worry? How much should you worry? Not, not very much, because I think, and this is like something I've had to discuss with my parents. I mean, these are ideas that, you know, I've had thoughts like this, uh, not very often, I'm glad to say, but like these are... This is my way of... It's like playing playing that scenario out within a song and then realizing at the end that that's not... That is not what you want. That is not what you need. And that's a very important part of songwriting for me is discovering, almost within the writing process from start to finish, discovering or going on a journey and then having all these messy thoughts suddenly make sense. So I don't think anyone needs to worry about me. Uh, and mom, if you're listening, I'm fine. These songs are all about thoughts that I've had that I've then come to terms with through writing. the role and the interplay between the music and the lyrics. And so a lot of your music, especially the ones, the songs that are most driven by organ, uh, tend to be rousing and anthemic or can be. And so sometimes there, there, there's ways to think about it. That might be doing the work of the emotion in counterpoint to the actual lyrics. I mean, if we took these lyrics and grafted them on to a more, more downbeat song, they would be really morose. But when you combine them with the anthem, I think the overall effect is bittersweet. And so I'm wondering, you know, is that something that you're consciously going for? Yeah, I definitely am. I always have been. And I think that's, that's a very important thing about what we do is 
I see the music as the the thing that opens the door to our world. So actually, like you say, that can be that can be celebratory, that can be anthemic, and that's something that people can, you know, lose themselves in. And then once they're lost in it, once they're once the door is open and they've walked in, it's almost like we can close it behind them and go, ah, there's all this, there's all this twisted stuff that you weren't necessarily hearing, and then and then you're kind of in the song. You really you really live inside of it. I think one of my favorite things that anyone ever said to me was like, it took them, they were they were listening to the band for like two weeks before they even realized what they were singing along to, and that's that's the perfect reaction for me. Is like you have these you know hummable melodies joyful choruses that express things that are less less than joyful, you know, and that's a contrast that I'm really interested in and will continue to be. Scott Hutchinson is the uh, vocalist, lead singer, songwriter for Frightened Rabbit. There was a time when he was the Frightened Rabbit. The new album is Painting of a Panic Attack, and they're on tour in North America all through the month of May. Then a little jaunt to Europe, but uh, they'll be playing. They'll be back at Lollapalooza in Chicago. Hey, thank you so much, Scott. It was was really good talking to you, and uh, I'm seeing the show tonight, and I look forward to it. Oh, nice. Thanks, man. And now a new podcast from the Panoply Network. I love Foreign Policy Magazine. I know you do too. But what is the shape of the table that their editors meet at? These and other questions answered. I've said too much. Let them go into some more details. Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, Foreign Policy CEO and Editor. Join us each week for FP's podcast, The Editor's Roundtable, where we bring together experts to triage the big issues of the day with emergency room like urgency and some mayhem. Subscribe to the ER on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. And now the spiel Brexit. There's not much stage left. Now is the time, once more, on the gist, to speak of this summer's referendum open to all voting Brits about whether they should stay in the European Union or should indeed Brexit. 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 Easy go. Whether to stay in. Easy go. Or go. It isn't over. Brexit. Yesterday at the British Museum, which houses the Rosetta Stone, that totem of translation that united disparate cultures and tongues millennia ago, British Prime Minister David Cameron appealed to his countrymen's sense of internationalism. His main tactic was to flatter them for being wise, brave, and commonsensically British. And he also threw in a bit about their flag. Our national flag is worn on clothing and t-shirts the world over not only as a fashion statement, but as a symbol of hope and a beacon of liberal values around the world. 
Actually, I thought it was because it was on the cover of The Who's The Kids Are All Right. But yeah, sure, values, perseverance, windmill guitar solos, whatever. What Cameron was doing was setting the ground for his most forceful, indeed his most gut-gripping argument yet for British to stay, remain a member of the European Union. You know the European Union, that collection of nation states founded as the European Cold and Steel Community in 1950. Then it was Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, all tricolor flags, all chocolate-making Europe. But in 1973, Denmark, Ireland, United Kingdom joined, setting the stage for some 43 years later for a sweeping debate in the UK whether to get the hell out. Should they stay or should they go? The debate is a clash indeed. With David Cameron referencing the wars his country has endured and warning that leaving the Union could spell doom. Can we be so sure that peace and stability on our continent are assured beyond any shadow of doubt? Is that a risk worth taking? I would never be so rash as to make that assumption. It's barely been 20 years since war in the Balkans and genocide on our continent in Srebrenica. In the last few years, we've seen tanks rolling into Georgia and Ukraine. But on the other side, there's Boris Johnson, rhetorically brilliant, tonsorally vibrant, conservative politician rejecting David Cameron's remain in the EU argument. Johnson skips past Cameron's real-life example of Russian tanks actually rolling into Ukraine and laughs off as Cassandras, those who say the EU would do Britain harm. The EU is, is associated with 70 years of stability, and we need to stay in to prevent, in shorthand, German tanks crossing the French border. Johnson's not an isolationist. Far from it. He listed his continental qualifications like a striving high school junior filling out a college application. I am, as I say, a liberal cosmopolitan. My family is a genetically equivalent of a UN peacekeeping force. I can read novels in French. I think I've even read a novel in Spanish. I can sing the Ode to Joy in German. Now, I do not think that that musical number was what David Cameron had in mind when he intoned, Now is a time for strength in numbers. The song Cameron was singing was overall less joyful, more martial. You know, something tells me the German composers have a score ready for that too. But as befits a proper English debate, question time held much appeal. After Cameron's speech, he was asked if his talk wasn't just alarmism at best. And then another reporter took him to task for evoking the gathering armies of Brexit by asking this question. Haven't you basically here simply set out the most apocalyptic version yet of Project Fear by raising the prospect that war would be more likely if Britain left the EU? Isn't there a danger that the voters are going to start to see you as simply crying wolf over this? No one can doubt that Europe has had a violent and turbulent and warlike history. And I think actually reminding ourselves of what, of what happened in the Balkans and on our continent uh, what's happening on our continent today with Ukraine? You know, these are facts. You have to admire the tone, not just the accent, but the quality of the arguments on both sides, the lack of wild inaccuracies. Oh, sure, what is being put forth is described by adherents as beyond the pale. But to me, much like the complexion of the Brits themselves, the complexion of this debate seems pretty much of the pale. You know what Trump would do in the U.S.? Trump, by the way, is pro-Brexit. 
Obama and 13 former secretaries of state are opposed, but Trump would be advocating for a Megxit and warning that if we don't withdraw from NAFTA, a flood of bad Mexicans will be stealing our jobs and our women and reclaiming their historic salad bowls. So now, right now in England, there is a cry for a Johnson Cameron TV debate on the Brexit about a referendum on membership in an international organization. The two sides have branded themselves as the leave side and the remain side. Remain, what a stirring bit of branding. And yet, it's pretty British. And the polls pretty much ever so slightly do agree. Remaining in the EU right now leads 46% to 43%, according to the latest Financial Times poll. Though The Economist actually has leave leading slightly in its poll of polls, Bloomberg has remained ahead by less than a point in its similar poll tracker, yet it still rates the chances of an actual Brexit actually happening at only 22%. The vote is to take place on June 23rd. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Andrea Salenzi, who's vehemently against all those instant messages popping up on her iPhone. She's part of this text it thing. The Gist is also produced by Mary Wilson, who's only watching movies on Netflix and Apple TV now on. It's part of a Cineplexit. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has sworn off to my ears the fantastic song Rump Shaker, but he's doing this Rex and Effects it. Andy Bowers is totally into the Lars Van Trier artisanal filmmaking thing, but he doesn't call it Dogma 95. He calls it a special effects it. The gist, proudly supporting, going without the support of Lycra or other overly constricting garments. It's the spandexit. Umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Brexit.